0: Heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass away from the law till all things be accomplished. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least um, commandments and shall teach men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. All things therefore whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, even so do ye also unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time of worship. Thank you, worship team, for leading us into the presence of God. Did you sense that? I mean, imagine, you can read Revelation 4 and 5 and see just how it's going to be in heaven, how it is in heaven, with all the angelic hosts worshiping the Lamb upon his throne. Well, um, please take your Bibles and turn again to Matthew chapter 5, as we consider our second in the series Resolved to obedience. I'm sort of adding from the inside out. We'll see what that means. It's actually in quotations. The gospel internalizes the law. So last week we considered together what it means to be salt and light. We preserve And flavor our world because we are followers of Christ and dwelt by his spirit. And we have opportunity to shine with the love of Christ to those around us. We are light shining in dark places. And it's great to spread that light out because it really becomes much more obvious uh, to places where people are lost and lonely and without hope. This morning, I'd like us to consider the reality Of internalizing the law of God, letting the word of God dwell in us richly, changing our core attitudes and mindset. That's what it's all about. When we follow Christ, we're changed, right? He changes us when we receive him. And then it's an ongoing process of spiritual formation. As we walk with him, he changes us from the inside out to be more like him. One of the biggest places of contention that Jesus had was with the religious leaders in relation to the law. They had worked extremely hard down through the generations and centuries to forge a way to Feel good about pleasing God. It all had to do with obedience to a complex list of requirements they had devised. And they were resolved to obey the law as they had come to know it. They were enthusiastically all in to this keeping of the law. And they could not tolerate any threats to this arrangement In comes Jesus. And we see in the context here, look in your Bibles to Matthew chapter five, back up to chapter four and verse twenty three. Jesus was going through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering from various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds were followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So, I mean, he's getting this massive following. They're coming to him, those who are suffering from various diseases and illnesses. They're hearing the gospel of the kingdom proclaimed, and he's meeting their needs. He's touching them with this power that in the name of Jesus, they're healed from whatever it was that ailed them from demonic control to epilepsy and paralysis. Jesus is the man. He is God in the flesh. Large crowds are following him from all around. The answers Jesus gives to those who are following him are radically life-changing for those who listened. And they're no less so for us today. So I want you to listen to the answers he's going to give to the questions that we're going to ask of this text today. How many of us prior to coming to Christ truly believed that if God was truly there and we were somehow to discover him and gain favor with him, that we needed to really game up, to raise the bar, to live good lives, to get our religious acts together? Did you ever feel that way before you came to him, like? That's one more thing I've got to do. I should do it. I should get around to pleasing God. And I hope that when life is over and the balance is set, that my good deeds somehow outweigh my bad. Well, for me as a young guy, this feeling made me insecure as to just where I stood with God. I always ask myself, have I done enough to really please him? What do I do with all the stuff in my life that I didn't know was pleasing to him? The sin. No matter how hard I tried to change, no matter how hard I resolved to do better, I just kept falling into the same old rut. Trying harder didn't seem to last. I couldn't improve. Into this world. World like this, Jesus comes and he reveals a new way. And yet it's an old way. It's old because it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures regarding God's plan of salvation. It's a new way because it unveils grace in a person. For everybody who's suffering. And that's why the crowds are so vast is because we're all in this together. We are all a hurting people. No different than those of Jesus' day. So I want to ask some questions as we go through the text that was read to us this morning, verses 17 through 20. It's only four verses. But I want to ask us some questions, and I want to answer those questions specifically, to the best of my ability. Why might the people have thought that Jesus was trying to abolish the law and the prophets? This was the threat of the Pharisees. They thought, what's he doing? Going about the countryside. Healing people with his own authority. Preaching the gospel of grace and peace. Presenting himself as the giver of eternal life. Speaking of the love of God for the world. It's a very different message than that of the law. Which rightly represents a holy God. Who demands his followers that you should be holy as I am holy. It was the message of the law and the prophets. Primarily the commandments. But it was. It had morphed into something that was very, very heavy to bear. How do I please God? Who is this guy? Who's come to abolish what we know is true. His preaching was accompanied by healing. He cared about the pain and the suffering of people. He met them in their pain and he proved to be the great physician who touched them exactly where they hurt. There was a sign to confirm his deity through his healing. It was also a demonstration of his compassion, of his heart laid out there for people. He loved He turned no one away, and there was no disease, disorder, or condition that he could not cure and did not want to cure. While this may not have seemed to be a threat to those who were the vanguards of the law, this act of mercy presented a sign to God that their life of law-keeping did not understand. They saw God as harsh And as a rule keeper, it made God in Christ now approachable. Someone who loved them, who was responsive to their needs. Who was this one who was trying to abolish the law? He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom was spoken of by Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah, and Zechariah, and all these Old Testament prophecies hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ's time. But they had this kind of unclear view as to just how it was to happen. They longed to look into the details of who he was, where he would be born, how it happened, but it wasn't theirs to know these things because he was reserving that for us. But they knew that the kingdom would come. And one of the most classic references is that of Isaiah chapter nine, where it says, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given and the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name shall be called, among other things, Prince. Prince of Peace, he would rule and of his government, there would be no end to its increase. He would sit upon the throne of his father, David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it in righteousness from then and forevermore. So this is what they were expecting from this one who was to come. But Jesus didn't seem to fit this bill. I mean, here he is. He, he didn't even go to school. He's wearing these, you know, kind of common clothes. He, there's nothing about him that really attracted them. He's calling people to him to, like the disciples who are fishermen. You know, where's he Where's he going with this thing? Who is this guy? You know, certainly he's not the Messiah that would come and set up this throne on earth and bring all these governments in subjection to him. He can't be the one. Jesus didn't fit the description that they were looking for. Too meek, gentle, otherworldly. Finally, he spoke with such authority concerning the commandments that it was a threat to them. I said, did you come to abolish the law because you're saying you have heard it said, but I say unto you. I can't even say that without getting choked up. That's the authority of our Savior. He was, in fact, the lawgiver right back in Exodus 20, who came down and wrote those laws on the stone. He's the same God. Who was before eternity. And now he speaks with this same authority. Which is very fitting for the Savior. But it was very threatening to those who were clinging to the law. After all, what they did not know and what Jesus would eventually say was that he was the author of the law and the prophets. That he is, as John says, the word made flesh who dwelt among us, the word. Okay, so they felt threatened by him. They thought he was, to abol- he was coming to abolish the law. He says, I did not come to abolish the law. Second question I want to ask, if it was Jesus' purpose to fulfill the law, how did he do it? If he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, how did Jesus fulfill the law? Well, he fulfilled the law and the prophets by fulfilling every prophecy concerning him, over 360 prophecies, both in his birth and in his life work. All was done according to the scriptures, and you can see that throughout the the gospels, according to the scriptures. If you look at all that was spoken about him in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born, he fulfilled every prophecy to the T. This should lead us to one conclusion. He is who he says he was. He was foretold that he would be born in Bethlehem by Micah, born of a virgin by Isaiah, a prophet like Moses, written by Moses. That he would be tempted by Satan in the Psalms. That he would enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey by Zechariah. And on and on. The mathematical chance of Jesus fulfilling even 48 of the prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 157th power. (laughs) That's 157 zeros after the 10. What are the chances that he would coincidentally fulfill all 360 prophecies? Forget it. It's Jesus. The Old Testament contains many prophecies concerning Christ's coming. But they were somewhat vague. And they longed to know what they were about. It was fulfilled in Jesus as Messiah. Jesus also fulfilled the law's moral requirements. That is, he was sinless. He never broke a command. He was perfect in every way because he was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit. His father was holy. He did not inherit the sin nature from Adam. As we talked about in Colossians, he was fully man and he was fully God. And so he was sinless. Had he been born a descendant of Adam, he would have inherited that sin nature, which would have made it impossible for him not to sin. But he didn't. So he always loved. He always hated injustice. He always extended grace and patience and gentleness and occasionally tough love when needed. Jesus fulfilled the law in every way, the prophecies as well as moral perfection. Another question following our text, why? What did Jesus mean when he said until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke will pass away until all is accomplished? Well, the law here refers to the Old Testament writings, the in its entirety what it means is in fact that the word of god never changes his commands are always relevant to every generation they don't become outdated archaic or in need of revision when he says that not the smallest letter or stroke will pass away it's like you saying i'm going to cross every t and dot every i that thing stands and lasts Forever. Peter speaks of this when he's comparing the fading beauty of human life to that of the word of the Lord. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Forever. That's an amazing concept. This means that we can count on the word of God as the one stable foundation among all the other uncertainties of life. His word is sure. Build your life upon the solid rock. Everything else is fading and faltering. His promises will always remain potent and relevant. The promises of God are reliable and trustworthy because they rest in his own unchanging character. It also means that we must not attempt to trifle with the word of God, change what it means to something else, nor should we dismiss it or ignore it because it will both come to pass and it is the truth on which the world will be judged. What is sin? You find it in the Bible. What is righteousness? It's found in the Bible. What does God expect from me? It's found in the Bible. What's the purpose of life? It's found in the Bible. What do I do when I struggle? It's the answers are found in God's word. This will not change. We must not attempt to trifle the word. We must simply obey the word of God. The Bible teaches with clarity on these and many other concerns of our day. The question is, am I seeking those answers from the right source? And am I willing to listen? Obedience comes from this word, akuo, which is un- listening under. And it's, and it's a picture of someone whose hand is on their ear and they're, they're peeled, listening to the voice among the sea of voices and the white noise of life. They're listening and straining to hear the voice of God so that they can obey what the word of God says. Now, practically speaking, I don't know if you have a Bible plan in place for this year. I know that that's oftentimes our resolution for the year. I happen to have a great recommendation for you, if you haven't, called the Discipleship Journal reading plan. And if you want to get it and you don't know where to get it, I would love to send it to you. Please sign up afterward and I'll make sure that I get it to you. Give me your email address. I'll forward it to you. If you read the Word of God every day, you're going to get filled with knowledge and build your life on that sure foundation. Okay, another question. How does a person's response to the law affect His or her relationship to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he says here in the verse 19, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what is the person's response to the law? due to affect his relationship to the kingdom of heaven. If a person annuls the law, what does that mean? Well, we know what annulling a marriage is. It's to make it invalid, right? If a person makes invalid the law of God, well, how do they do that? We can do it by teaching something that's a little bit modified from the law, saying, well, it didn't mean exactly what he think. Satan did that right in the garden. You've heard it said that You know, Satan approaches Eve and he said, did God say? She says, well, yeah, God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden or you're going to die. And what does he say? You're not going to die. The real thing is that God knows that when you eat of that fruit, you're going to become like him. so. We can annul the Word of God by changing, modifying. We've got to be very careful that we don't do that. We can also annul the Word of God by our, by our inconsistent lifestyle. I say I believe this, but you see me living like that. And rather than listening to what I'm saying, you're following what I'm doing. You know, our kids do that, right? They see right through us. doesn't matter what we say, they do what we do. But other people do that, too. I can annul the word of God by not living consistency consistent with the word of God. And you look at my life and, and Jesus says, don't cause one of these little ones to stumble because it would be better for you if a millstone were wrapped around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than to cause one of my little ones to stumble. These of little fresh faith. You know, so don't annul the word of God. We live in a day when people are nullifying the commandments, those commandments that they don't feel good about. They dismiss them, suggest that they couldn't possibly be relevant to the day in which we live. That's not true because it's based upon the immutable character of Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. And his word will not change. We are judged by it. We do not judge the word of God. So if a person practices and teaches the commands, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let me say this, too, before I go on, that in this um, this last one, the one who annuls the, the commandments, it says he'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. It sounds like he's still in the kingdom, right? So this can happen to followers of Christ, that we can be followers of Christ and in the kingdom, but also... Be least in the kingdom of God. Take that honor and that glory that we're to share with him in his eternal kingdom and take it from us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that it's like we're saved yet as through fire. You'll be saved, but your work will burn up because your work is riddled with inconsistencies. You're not living what you say you believe. But the person who practices and teaches the commandments. He's that follower who should be called great in the kingdom of God. And, of course, I'm going to refer to Ezra, my favorite priest in the Old Testament, in ancient Judah, that one verse, Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And because of that, God prospered him and blessed him in everything that he did. He loved the Lord and he wanted to please the Lord. Not like the Pharisees who perhaps thought that they knew how to do it. But were dealing with all kinds of stuff inside because it wasn't internalized. Ezra truly did internalize the law. So that's how we can annul or support and practice the commandments. Let's talk about what it means to internalize The law of God by looking now at the question, in what way must our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? The scribes and the Pharisees had uh, established a righteousness based on meticulous obedience to the law. John Stott says it was right conformity. Right conformity was the passion of their lives. They counted up. The 248 commands and 365 prohibitions of the law, and they aspired to keep them all. It was like, you know, being a Boy Scout, right? You get the manual and you say, I want to earn my badges or a Girl Scout. I want to earn my badges. And so you look through and you find the projects and you start doing because you're going to get these little things on your, you know, sash. Or your, and it's kind of cool, but, you know, you're feeling good about yourself because you're checking them off. And you're going somewhere, right? And and you're aspiring and people are looking at you and they're seeing all the things on your sash. This is how they felt. They were meticulous in their obedience to the law because they were trying to earn favor with God through their work. It was a self-righteousness based on performance. It was rigorous and demanding, but it yielded great satisfaction when done with enthusiasm, they were content with the outward expressions of obedience. They appeared well to people, but Jesus said they were like a cup that was clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. They were like a tomb that was whitewashed on the outside, but it was filled with dead man's bones. They had no depth to them. There was nothing going on inside. They were dealing with sin inside, but they were performing Well, (coughs) hoping that if they did all these things, 240, 365 prohibitions, they would somehow make it. The righteousness of the law that Jesus called us to was a different kind altogether. defined much deeper. For instance, murder was redefined as being angry with your brother without resolving that conflict. Sort of letting it linger. Okay, I know I'm meddling now. <laughs> Calling your brother a good for nothing. Uh, a fool will get you in danger of hellfire, according to Jesus. This kind of law was impossible to attain. Do you agree? I mean, this is what he said Was going on inside. This was the purpose of the law. The law was acting as a tutor. Jesus was saying. You think it's hard. Let me tell you guys. You're not even hitting the surface. Because it goes much deeper. It deals with your thoughts. And your intentions. That's what God is looking at. And you have flunked miserably. And you know. That's the place that we're all supposed to realize. We're at. We're depraved. We flunked. Miserably, we have anger toward people. We hold grudges. We get bitter. We don't know what to do with it. We avoid people. You know, after a while, there's not too many places you can walk without running into someone you wanted to avoid. But our Savior did meet the demands of the law. He was perfect in every way. He loved fully. He forgave completely. Our righteousness is not earned. It's attained through grace. It's based upon the merits of Jesus. The righteousness of God comes to us as a gift. We believe that Christ did it all. And so I don't have to because, frankly, I can't. And now I rest in the merits of Christ. How do I do that? By faith, it seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? So easy, too, too easy. Give me something to do. Give me a mountain to climb. By goodness, you know, make it hard for me. I deserve to hurt. I deserve to struggle. Says, "No, this is grace. It's handed to you. I paid your price." Oh, it was a costly price. I died in your place. I took your sins upon my body and I was pierced for your transgressions. All you have to do is believe that I did that for you. And then all my righteousness is transferred to your account. And you are seen by God as holy and righteous before him. This is our reality, folks. This is not just wishful thinking. This is biblical teaching. Do you get it? And Christians, do you live by that? Or do you now have all these mountains you're trying to climb to please God? You you started well, but are you finishing well? You finish by faith, the same faith that saved you. You do not try to please God with all your good deeds. You please God because you're his child, and you love him. He's done it all. And he looks at you as completely righteous. Okay, the final question I want to ask is how does the golden rule sum up the law and prophets? You say, What's the golden rule? Okay, look in your Bibles to seven twelve. You gotta turn your Bibles to chapter seven and verse twelve, because that's included in my assignment this morning. It is the summation of the law and the prophets. He says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. How does the golden rule sum up the law and the prophets? Well, I mean, it seems very simple, but it's very profound. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. The commandment deals with relationships. So this is not about me going out in the desert and getting alone with God. This is about me in relation to you. You know, ah, but you annoy me. I don't like you. You know, I mean that's how we feel sometimes, right? Because you make me angry. You say things to me that bother me. You know, what he's saying here is that you want to keep the law and the prophets. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you employ the golden rule to your life that requires introspection. Self-interest is leveraged to turn one away from himself, herself, to focus on the needs of others. So think for a moment, perhaps more than a moment. What do I want to receive? What would I love to receive from you? I'd love to go around the room and ask you, what do you how do you want to be treated by people? I want to be treated with respect. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. I want to be treated with respect. So I think about what it takes for me to feel respected. I like it when people listen to me. I like it when they nod and actually think that what I have to say is worth hearing that I have a contribution to make. I love it when they treat me with respect, when they give me honor, when they address me kindly. So what does that mean for me? That's exactly how I'm to treat you and you and you. I love appreciation. I love to be noticed for the things that I did for people, even though I try to do it for the right reasons without being noticed. You know, I just love when someone says, that was a great breakfast. Thanks. You I appreciate you doing that for me. It doesn't have to be much, but I love to be thanked. And I know that moms don't know what it means to be thanked, but dads need to be thanked. All of us need to be thanked, right? And life is full of opportunities to say thank you. I appreciate you. You did a good job. I heard someone say something about you that I just like to repeat. You don't have to worry that we're going to give them a big head. You know? I don't want to say that because it's just going to make them proud. You know? I just want to say thank you for what you have done. I want you to know that someone else noticed Something that you did. Express appreciation. I love to be treated with grace and mercy. What does that mean? It means I love you to forgive me. I I love you to extend to me grace when I say stupid things, when I don't act the way I should act, when I offend you. I love it when you ex the, when you don't give me what I deserve, but you do give me what I don't deserve. You know. And if I love that, I should give that to you, all of you. I should always think the best about you. I should never try to read between the lines and suspect that there's some evil thing going on here. Or, yep, that just supports my previous presupposition. They hate me. I love to be loved unconditionally. Not jumping through your hoops so that you can say, okay, now you get a little hug around the shoulder because you were a good boy. No, I love to be just loved because I'm I'm unconditionally loved. You just are committed to me. Even when I irritate and annoy you. And I love friendship. I love you to come alongside me and actually act like you like me. You know, you know not not just love me because you should, because I... I know you're a Christian, but actually find something about me that you that you think is cool, that you want to figure out more about. This is what Paul said in Philippians when he talked about Jesus, his lifestyle was. That he became like us and he put himself in our place. And then he says to those followers of Christ, do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Not just as good as you, but actually consider them as more important than yourself. I have a hard time with that. I've got to be frank with you. I need to spend a lot more time imagining what's going on in your life. And maybe not just imagining, but asking you, you know, what's going on in your life? How you doing? And then making notes of that so that I know how to love you better. So wrapping this up, I want you to take away six things from the questions that we've asked. God loves you. He's not angry with you in the same way that Jesus walked through the countryside and he extended grace. And by his authority, he healed and met every need and preached the gospel of grace. He extends that to you right now. Accept that. Don't keep thinking God's mad at me. I have to jump through his hoops. I've got to perform for him because that's not what it's about. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's God's son sent to explain to us the father's love and his grace. He fulfilled every prophecy and every scripture. Thirdly, the word of God will never change because it's rooted in the very nature and character of God himself. He never needs to publish a second edition with additional thoughts and changes The first was good enough because he was perfect then and he's perfect now and will always be. So let's get plugged into his word. Fourthly, won't you embrace his word and let it lead you to him? Practice and teach it, my fellow Christians. It sets us free. The other day I got tickled because Gail got up. She was going to bed at night and she said, can't wait to get up in the morning and get my Bible and go sit on my chair with my tea and just read this this new year of devotions. You know, say, Praise God. You know, that's our food. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God is like chocolate. The more you eat it, the more you want it. And it satisfies deeply in the soul. So. Indulge, my friends, and let it fill you and it will give you strength and it will build a foundation under your life. And you will prosper like the man who is planted by the river of water, who sends down his roots into the word of God. You'll prosper in all that you do. Fifthly, know that your righteousness will exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees if you allow the law to lead you to Christ. And continually lead you to Christ. Don't continue what you started in faith. Don't continue by works. Keep looking back to Jesus. And find your peace with God. Your relationship with God based upon him. And then finally, as a follower of Christ, you will uphold the law by doing one simple thing. Practice the golden rule. Practice it well. Practice it often. Think about it today as you go. Who is it in your car that you can practice this golden rule with? Who is it in your community? Invest your thoughts in the lives of others. Put yourself in their place. Feel their pain. Do for others what you would like others to do for you. Let's pray. Father God. We pray that you would grant us a filling of your spirit as we go from this place, that we might have internalized this law and continually internalize and be changed by the word of God and thereby be powerful witnesses and examples and demonstrations of your grace to the world around We commit ourselves to you, Father, and I pray that if there's anyone who doesn't know you yet, that today would be the day of salvation for that person. We know that you love them so very dearly. Touch hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.